You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present to you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, what is today's show going to be? Well, it's kind of a post-Christmas show. We've just um, gone through, uh, you could say, the heart of the Christmas season. It's not, strictly speaking, entirely over, but we've certainly, most of us have uh, celebrated Christmas and Epiphany and the uh, baptism of the Lord and so forth. And, of course, it's a it's a season that's full of a lot of joyful celebration, a lot of special food, a lot of presents, a lot of parties and so forth. And there's always a danger that we kind of lose what it's really about. Lose the uh, relationship, let's say, between Christmas and the most fundamental event that ever happened in the creation of the world since the creation of the world, or certainly since the creation of man. The most fundamental event that happened to mankind since the creation of man, one could even argue even more fundamental than the creation of man, but in any case, which is the transformation of man and the transformation of the relationship between man and God and the transformation of our eternity through the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his suffering and his death and the sacraments that he has left behind, most particularly in the Catholic Church. And so that is really my plan for today's show is to dwell on to dwell on the reality the reality of I don't want to say the reality of Christmas but the reality of what the fundamental change was with the coming of Christ and how nothing 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 makes sense the same way after as before so in order to do that, I have some readings in front of me that I want to uh, read. Uh, and um, I, it depends on the time that we have. But I want to start with some uh, Desert Fathers, monks from the first half of the time of the church, let's say, from, from the time of Christ until about the 10th century or so. And their reflection on basically what it means to be a man, what it means to be, what the fallen state of human nature means, and what the redeemed state of human nature means, I suppose is one way one could look at it. So that's where I'm going to start. Before I get started, I have to remind myself this is a live call-in show, and the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, um, and if you're out of this country or if you like using Skype, we're also reachable uh, via Skype at Radio Maria USA Studio. So that being said, uh, and I'm welcome, uh, I welcome calls at any point, but I will be taking a short musical break about halfway through the show, at which point it's particularly graceful to call in because then um, rather than then interrupt the flow of anything coming out of the musical break. I will check the call board and see if any calls have come in. 
So I am just going to start reading some um, a meditation is what it amounts to. It's a meditation from a monk of about the tenth, uh, eleventh century, Saint Peter of Damascus. And what he's doing here is presenting a series of meditations that are designed to kind of purify the soul and wake us up and wake us up to who we are and who God is and how much um, gratitude and love and fidelity and adoration we should have to God basically out of out of the basic debt of gratitude. And so um, he's divided these up uh, into eight stages of contemplation as a kind of a, a program series of meditations um, in his monastic, her, you know, life of a hermit. He imagined them to be the subject of months and months or years and years of meditation, each of those stages until graduating to the next stage. But we're simply going to read them as uh, worthwhile thoughts to dwell on, one could say, at the moment. So let me begin with the first meditation, the first stage of contemplation by St. Peter of Damascus. The first stage of contemplation is that which leads the seeker to all the later stages. The person who is called to this first stage should act as follows. He should seat himself facing the east as once did Adam and meditate in this way, quote, Adam then sat and wept because of his loss of the delights of paradise, beating his eyes with his fists and saying, O merciful one, have mercy on me, for I have fallen. Seeing the angel driving him out and closing the door to the divine garden, Adam groaned aloud and said, O merciful one, have mercy on me, for I have fallen. After that, reflecting on what then took place, he should begin to lament in this way, grieving with all his soul and shaking his head and saying with great sorrow of heart, Woe is me, a sinner, what has happened to me? Alas, what was I and what have I become? What have I lost, what have I found? Instead of paradise, this perishable world, instead of God and life in the company of the angels, the devil and the demons of impurity. In the place of rest, hard labor, in the place of gladness and joy, the sorrows and tribulations of this world, instead of peace and endless bliss, fear and tears of sorrow. In the place of virtue and justice, injustice and sin, instead of goodness and dispassion, evil and passion, instead of wisdom and intimacy with God, ignorance and exile, instead of detachment and freedom, a life full of worries and the worst kind of slavery. Woe, woe is me! How, created a king, have I become in my folly a slave of passion? How can I have embraced death instead of life through my disobedience? Alas, what has happened to me, pitiful that I am, because of my thoughtlessness? What shall I do? War and confusion beset me, illness and temptation, danger and shipwreck, fear and sorrow, passion and sin, bitterness and distress. What shall I do? Where shall I flee? All doors are closed to me, as Susanna said. Now, now this is Roy interrupting. 
You see, this is basically the state of man. This is really where we are. We were created, mankind was created, man was created, Adam was created in the Garden of Eden. He was created in a state of intimacy with God. He was created in paradise. He was created for life in the company of the angels. He was created for a life or an existence of rest, of gladness and joy, peace and endless bliss, virtue and justice, and so forth. And yet we find ourselves in this world, this world of, as St. Peter of Damascus says, the devil and the demons of impurity, hard labor, sorrows and tribulations, fear and tears of sorrow, injustice and sin, ignorance and exile, and so forth. Yes. Don't be surprised when you look around you. Don't be surprised at the world that God stuck us in. It's the world that we chose, mankind chose, through disobedience. We were stuck here, terminally stuck here, having lost unimaginable bliss and being condemned to this life of suffering and woe and misery until Jesus came. Now we're only stuck here for a scant 80 or 90 or 100 years. And then, if we play our cards right, we not only get restored to the Garden of Eden paradise that we were first created in, but we actually get an infinitely higher state of bliss through the beatific vision, a much greater greater intimacy and um, coexistence with God, participation in the very life of God. That is what Jesus brought us. Remember that little infant in the crib in Bethlehem. That is actually what Number one, that's what Christmas is. That's what Christmas brought us. Number two, you know, when, when, if you're religious, I mean, in other words, if you believe in God, if you evangelize, probably the number one question which comes your way is how can there be an all-powerful, all-good God when there is so much suffering in the world? And this is really the answer. The answer is, This is the world that came about through the fall of man. This isn't the world that God originally chose for us. This world, having come about through the fall of man, is now a condition for graduating from this world to the next world, so to speak. It's a trial. It's a period of testing. It's a period of purification. It is not the bliss for which we were created. The bliss for which we were created is going to have to wait until we die. We get little, we get little slivers of it in this life, through our relationship with God, but the texture, the day in and day in out texture of our life, between birth and death, is not what God originally chose for us. So, there's so much in this perspective that's so necessary to absorb, in order to have the correct relationship to ourselves, to God, the correct gratitude to God the uh, fullness of the faith, and the full appreciation of Christmas. So I'm going to go back now to St. Peter of Damascus. I just wanted to kind of interject essentially why I'm doing this and why it's so important for us to dwell on this, that, that no, we're not in the state that God originally intended for us and created for us. Oh, we already have a caller. Okay, well, um, I'm happy to take the call. Uh, would you tell us uh, where you're calling from and if you're willing to, your name? 
Caller? I'm just, Roy, I'm just trying to... There we go. I put you on mute. It, it's Brent. Okay. Did you have a question or a comment? Roy, um, what I wanted to ask was the, the Jewish people... Um, you know, in in the times before Christ, they, am I right in saying some of them did not believe in an afterlife? Yes, that's correct. So what kept them motivated? What inspired them to continue if there's no everlasting life and being with God forever? That's an excellent question. It's a, uh, it's a very deep question and a potentially very long answer. First of all, um, you're, the, it was the sect of the Sadducees that uh, didn't believe in an afterlife. And um, uh, all I can say is the following, which is that I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question a little bit sideways, which is the uh, majority of Jews then, and uh, virtually all religious Jews today um, did believe in an afterlife, do believe in an afterlife, but even today, um, the Jews do not believe that, uh, let me think of how to say this politely, Um, one is not good in order to achieve the afterlife. The basic um, pervasive Jewish theology today is that, um, I don't want to sound too chauvinistic, but that all that all Jews have a share in the world to come. All Jews participate in the afterlife. Getting to the afterlife and getting to the happy afterlife, so to speak, is not a matter of sinning or not sinning. One, a religious Jew today is religious and performs the practices of Judaism and tries to be virtuous not as a function of reward and punishment, but out of love of God, fidelity to God, what they owe to God, and so forth. So it's actually a a relatively pure intention. And that actually still, that's one of the reasons I'm doing this reading today, that actually should in some sense be our intention, right? It's even the act of contrition. You know, you're you're contrite because you fear the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but mostly because you love God and you want to be faithful to God. So, so um, even if they didn't believe in an afterlife, let's hope that if they were good in their soul, they were doing it because they wanted to do justice to God and please God and do what God wanted for its own sake. That would be an even higher motivation, right? And even pure motivation. So anyway, there you go. It's right. a, a, um, it's not a great answer. It's, it's as good as I can do off the cuff, but it ties into today's show because um, what I'm trying to do, what this, what this reading is actually doing is trying to stir up an acknowledgement of um, what we truly deserve, which is pretty terrible, what God has arranged for us, which is pretty wonderful, and therefore an overwhelming sense of, of gratitude and fidelity to God simply for his goodness rather than for our own you know, punishment or reward. Thank you for your call.
welcome. Thanks, Roy. Sure. Um, I, I'm going to continue. Um, okay. Uh, back to uh, St. Peter of Damascus. I do not know what to ask for. If I ask for life, I fear the trials of life, its ups and downs, its conflicts. I see how Satan, the angel who once rose as the morning star, has now become the devil. I see how the first created man was sent into exile, how Cain became his brother's murderer, how Canaan was cursed. I see the citizens of Sodom burned by fire, Esau banished, the Israelites subjected to God's wrath. Um, I see David, the great prophet and king, lamenting his double sin. I see Solomon, for all his wisdom, fallen. Yet who am I, who am worse and more stubborn and weaker than all of these? What shall I call myself? For Abraham says that he is dust and ashes. David calls himself a dead dog and a flea in Israel. Solomon calls himself a little child, not knowing left from right. The three holy children say we have become a shame and a reproach. Isaiah the prophet says, Woe is me, for I am undone, a man of unclean lips. The prophet Habakkuk says, I am a child. St. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and all the rest said that they were nothing. What then should I do? Where shall I hide myself from my many crimes? What will become of me who am nothing, worse than nothing? For that which is nothing has not sinned, nor has it received God's blessings as I have. Alas, how shall I pass the rest of my life, and how shall I escape the snares of the devil? For the demons are sleepless and immaterial, death is at hand, and I am weak. Lord, help me. Do not let thy creature perish, for thou carest for me in my misery." Make known to me, Lord, which way I should go, for I lift up my soul to thee. Forsake me not, O Lord my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. By such words the soul is made contrite, if it has at least some sensibility. By persisting in this way and growing accustomed to the fear, the intellect begins to understand and meditate on the second stage of contemplation. Okay, I'm interjecting now. This can't but help, uh, can't but call to mind the prayer of the publican and the sinner. Do you remember that? In the Gospels, the, um, the fair, excuse me, the Pharisee, the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee who goes into the temple and prays, Oh Lord, I thank you for not making me want, like one of these sinners. I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of everything and so forth. And the poor sinner, the, the publican, who simply beats, beats his breast and says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. And that's what this is. This is a meditation. And it's true. It's true. Lest we become full of ourselves, which is a, a particular danger, by the way, for those of us who are relatively religious. Um you know, how easy it is to take the role of a Pharisee and start feeling satisfied with ourselves. Um, in fact, in fact, we would do better, we would do better to have this meditation in our minds and on our hearts. And um, there's, a, there's a beautiful meditation that I don't have in front of me by a Carthusian who points out that um, 
nothing good in us can we take credit for. There's only one thing. I mean, any good that we have in us is God's grace working in us. It's a free gift of God. There's only one thing we own. There's only one thing that we can take credit for, and that's our sin, our, our rebellion against God. That comes from us. Everything good comes from God. Everything wicked comes from us. Um, and uh, anyway, so this is the first stage of contemplation that the um, that uh, St. Peter of Damascus is um, has in his eight stages of contemplation. By the way, if any of you have done this Ignatian exercise of St. Ignatius, you may recognize this because... Saint Ignatius of Loyola, in his um, uh, in his spiritual exercises, follows a very similar path. Where the beginning of the spiritual exercises is to meditate on the state that God originally created man in, the fall of man, the hideousness of man's rebellion against God, the hideousness of our continual rebellion by choosing sin, um, and so forth, in order to make us properly receptive and uh, grateful for the unmerited gift of forgiveness and repentance and restoration through Christ. That's Remember, if you've forgotten, that's the theme of today's show, because actually the theme of today's show is what Christmas has brought us. Okay, so now uh, we have gotten to St. Peter of Damascus's second stage of contemplation, which may be all we get to today. But that's fine. Um, I hope this is useful. Um, and in a few minutes, we're almost halfway through the hour, so I will simply repeat that the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, or Skype, Radio Maria USA Studio. And I will go to a musical break in about five minutes. And if you wish to call in during the musical break, I, coming out of the break, I'll immediately go to the call board. Second stage of contemplation. Woe, how unhappy I am. What shall I do? I have sinned gravely. Many blessings are bestowed on me. I am very weak. Many are the temptations. Sloth overwhelms me. Forgetfulness benights me and will not let me see myself and my many crimes. Ignorance is evil. Conscious transgression is worse. Virtue is difficult to achieve. The passions are many. The demons are crafty and subtle. Sin is easy. Death is near. The reckoning is bitter. Alas, what shall I do? Where shall I flee from myself? For I am the cause of my own destruction. I have been honored with free will, and no one can force me. I have sinned. I sin constantly, and am indifferent to any good thing, though no one constrains me. Whom can I blame? God, who is good and full of compassion, who always longs for us to turn to him and repent, the angels who love and protect me, men who also desire my progress, the demons, they cannot constrain anyone unless, because of negligence or despair, he chooses to destroy himself. Who is then to blame? Surely it is I myself. Again, right? This is really... In some sense, spirituality 101. We have no one to blame but ourselves for our sin, for our sloth, for our continual transgressions. 
I'll just, I, I mean, I could just repeat this. I don't know if that's worthwhile. Many blessings are bestowed on me. Many are the temptations. Sloth overwhelms me. Forgetfulness benights me. Ignorance is evil. Tran- conscious transgression is worse. The passions are many. I am the cause of my own destruction. I have been honored with free will, and no one can force me. I have sinned. I sin constantly, and I am indifferent to any good thing, though no one constrains me. Whom can I blame? God, who is full, good and full of compassion, who always longs for us to turn to him and repent? The angels who love and protect me? The demons, they cannot constrain anyone, unless he chooses to destroy himself. Who is then to blame? Surely it is ourselves. Again, you see the, the theme, the purpose of these early contemplations are to stir up true contrition. Gratitude to God and contrition for how far short we fall. Uh, continuing. I begin to see that my soul is being destroyed, and yet I make no effort to embark on a godly life. Why, O oh my soul, are you so indifferent about yourself? Why, when you sin, are you not as ashamed as... Excuse me. Are, why, when you sin, are you not as ashamed before God and his angels as you are before men? Alas, for I do not feel the shame before my Creator and Master that I feel before a man. Before a man I cannot sin, but do all I can to appear to be acting righteously. Yet standing before God, I think evil thoughts, and often am I not ashamed to speak of them. What madness! Though I sin, I have no fear of God who watches me, and yet I cannot tell to a single man what I have done so as to give him a chance to correct me. This is worth stopping and dwelling on a little bit. Okay, a little exercise for our Catholic viewers. How often have you been sitting in the pew waiting to go to confession, trying to screw up the courage to tell the priest some sin that you did because you're ashamed of it and you're ashamed to admit that you did it? You're ashamed to tell a man what you've done. And yet, you, you, me had no shame to commit that sin when before God, when God was watching. How, how foolish are we that we are more concerned with the reaction of the man that we tell the sin to than we are to the God before whom we sinned. And those are sins that are visible, right? What about... What about our thoughts, which are always visible to God? How often do we have evil thoughts? And we're not ashamed to be parading these evil thoughts before God? You know, what if they are thoughts of vengeance? What if they're thoughts of anger? What if they're thoughts of impurity? And yet, you know, we'd be ashamed to tell them to the priest, and yet we're not ashamed to parade them before God? Wow, do we have things backwards. Uh, I will continue. Alas, for I know the punishment, and yet am unwilling to repent. I love the heavenly kingdom, and yet do not acquire virtue. I believe in God, and yet constantly disobey his commandments. I hate the devil, and yet do not stop doing what he wants. 
If I pray, I lose interest and become unfeeling. If I fast, I become proud and damn myself all the more. I'm going to interrupt myself here shortly. I mean, only for a short period, I hope. Um, I'm an oblate at a uh, Benedictine monastery in France, and the abbot who founded the monastery forbade his monks from fasting. And the reason is because the previous monastery where he was, the monks used to fast, and they used to try to outdo each other in fasting and become very proud. You know, oh, you fasted, you know, for 24 hours, but I fasted for 48 hours. You know, I'm so much better at fasting than you. Anyway, he was so disgusted at the pride that was generated by the mortification that he actually made it a rule that they weren't allowed to fast. Okay, back to the text. If I keep vigil, I think I have achieved something, and so I have no profit from it. If I read, I do one of two evil things in my stubbornness. Either I read for the sake of profane learning and self-esteem, and so am further benighted, or by reading and not acting in the spirit of what I read, I simply increase my guilt. If by God's grace I happen to stop sinning in outward action, I do not stop sinning continually in what I say. And if God's grace should protect me also from this, I continue to provoke his wrath by my evil thoughts. Alas, what can I do? Wherever I go, I find sin. Everywhere there are demons. Despair is the worst of all. I have provoked God. I have saddened his angels. I have frequently injured and offended men. Okay, I'm going to break because I'm at the halfway point. I will continue afterwards. I'll have I'll I'll insert a short musical break here, and um, when I come back, I'll look at the call board. But again, because this is in a sense negative, I mean it's not really negative, but superficially it seems negative. Let me point out that this is what Jesus came to forgive us of, to save us from, to enable us to strive to overcome, and to enable us to achieve a eternity far better than God originally intended for man. And this is what Jesus came to Bethlehem as the baby in the crib for, and this is what he suffered the passion and death on the cross for. And so this is really a very, very, very happy story because of Jesus. And with that, um, since this is Radio Maria, I've been talking a lot about Jesus. I don't mean to slight the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, I will play a a traditional Catholic hymn, um, Totally Beautiful is, is Mary. So with that, let's go to that short hymn, and afterwards I'll come back, I'll check the call board, and um, after the calls, if there are any, I will go back to St. Peter of Damascus. So now, Tota Pulcra S. Maria. Tota Pulcra S. Maria Tota Pulcra S. Maria Et Macula Origina
Beautiful. That was sung by Harpa Dei, by the way, uh, a small religious community out of uh, Germany, actually. And uh, if you like that kind of music, you may check them out on YouTube. Harpa Dei means the Harp of God, H-A-R-P-A, new word D-E-I. Uh, and they have lots of music up on YouTube for free, which I'm very grateful they allow me to use without... Um, without any, uh, you know, without any royalties or copyright issues. Anyway, back to, um, back to the reading from St. Peter of Damascus, since I don't, I don't see any calls having come in. If a call comes in, of course, I will, uh, try to catch it and pay attention to it when it comes in. So I will continue with this, um, basically act of contrition. I would like, oh, you're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Shoman. And we've been reading today from one of the um, Desert Fathers, St. Peter of Damascus, a series of contemplations. Um, he intended them to stir up contrition and repentance. Um, and I'm intending them to stir up contrition and repentance, but also with an eye towards gratitude for what Jesus brought us on Christmas and on Good Friday and on Easter. So back to the text. I would like, Lord, to erase the record of my sins by tears and through repentance to live the rest of my life according to thy will. But the enemy deceives me and battles with my soul. Lord, before I perish, completely save me. I have sinned against the Savior like the prodigal son. Receive me, Father, in my repentance, and have mercy on me, O God. I cry to thee, O Christ my Savior, with the voice of the publican. Be gracious to me as to him, and have mercy upon me, O God. What will happen in my last days? What is to come afterwards? How hapless I am. Who will give water to my head and a fountain of tears to my eyes? Who can grieve for me as I deserve? I cannot do so. Come, mountains, cover me in my abjectness. What have I to say? Oh, how many blessings God has bestowed on me, blessings that only he knows of, and how many terrible things in act, word, and thought have I done in my ingratitude, always provoking my benefactor. And the more, more long-suffering he is, the more I disdain him. 
becoming harder and harder than lifeless stones. Yet I do not despair, but acknowledge thy great compassion. I have no repentance, no tears. Therefore I entreat thee, Savior, to make me turn back before I die, and to grant me repentance, so that I may be spared punishment. O Lord my God, do not abandon me, though I am nothing before thee, though I am wholly a sinner. How shall I become aware of my many sins? For unless I become aware, severe is my condemnation. For that for me thou hast created heaven and earth, the four elements, and all that is formed from them. I shall keep silence as to the rest, for I am unworthy to say anything because of my many crimes. Who, even if he had the intellect of an angel, could grasp all the countless blessings I have been given, yet, because I do not change my ways, I shall lose them all. And so ends St. Peter of Damascus' second contemplation, stirring up contrition for our sins, stirring up a sense of our own incapacity to be worthy of what God has arranged for us, And what that means is that everything that God has arranged for us redounds to his glory, is an expression of his mercy, is an expression of his unwarranted goodness towards us, and therefore should be reciprocated with, I don't know how to put it, unspeakable gratitude, unspeakable gratitude, and also contrition for our sins, and also Um, a uh, resolution to, if not sin no more, at least continually chip away at the frequency and severity of our sins, which, by the way, is what we have the great gift of the sacrament of confession for. And without it, not only do we not get rid of the stain of sin, but we have little chance of growing in virtue. So, Um, I don't like to preach. I'm not certified to preach. I'm not a priest. Um, I have no official qualifications. But um, all I can say is we as Catholics are fools if we don't make generous use of the sacrament of confession. Now, this is, um, I'm going to shift gears now. Uh, So, I'm going to turn off away from, excuse me, turn away from uh, Peter of Damascus. Again, this is a call-in show, and you're welcome to call in at this point. But I'm going to turn, it's also Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism. So I'm going to spend the last, uh, I don't want to say few minutes, but the last 15 minutes that I have on the show, reading from a Jewish convert. Uh, Charlie Rich, Charles Rich, who was a Hasidic Jew, those are the ultra-Orthodox Jews, who became a Catholic contemplative, praying before the Blessed Sacrament 12 or 14 hours a day for most of his very long life. And I'm going to read a reflection of his, which I think you'll see the echo. And by the way, he's he's from our day. He died in... Um, 1998 or 1999, but I think you'll see an echo of the Church Fathers in him, and I'm not going to apologize for the severity of what he writes. I am going to say that it is a legitimate view. It's not the only view. I'm not imposing it on anybody, 
but I think it is a worthwhile perspective to at least chew over a little bit, if that makes sense. Even if one chews it out, chews it over, and then doesn't swallow it, it's it's worth um, it's worth uh, considering. So uh, it's a it's a meditation of his called the True Life, and the opening scripture quote for it is. It's from the first letter of John. It's scriptural. Have no love for the world, nor the things that the world affords. If anyone loves the world, the Father's love has no place in him. Now that's from the first letter of John, so it's scriptural. So don't blame Charlie Rich for it. Don't blame me for it. Have no love for the world, nor the things that the world affords. If anyone loves the world, the Father's love has no place in him. Now I'm switching to... um, Uh, Charlie Rich's text. Rarely do we hear these words spoken today anywhere. We don't hear them in our churches. That's why so many are deceived in their pursuit of happiness and seek it where it was not meant by God to be had. The world is a natural enemy of all the spirit stands for, all it longs for, of all its aspirations. And so anyone who fills up his heart and mind with what the world has to offer has no room in himself for the things of Christ. The world and God cannot be reconciled, save by means of the reconciliation Christ is. But what is that reconciliation? It consists in the renunciation of all that is not of a nature to last forever, all temporal things, and in the making use of them, but not in the setting of our hearts upon them. God breaks the hearts of those who love him, He despoils them of all their hopes and causes them to be cast aside by the world. All the saints were failures as far as the things of this life are concerned. They gloried in their misfortunes and considered them the exact opposite of what the world holds them to be. The saints were always reminded that in the words of the poet Rilke, they had no home in time. It was to the grave the saints loved to go since there they found answers to all their questions and comfort for all their sorrows. The world and its vanities have rooted themselves in the hearts of men and women, so that only the grace of Christ is able to remove them, and it does this by means of suffering. Suffering clears away the haze from the eyes of the soul, and it's only when this haze is removed that we can see things in their proper perspective. Christ and the world are totally different. The world misleads, and he does not. The world holds up a different set of values from those he came to bring. The world says education will save our souls, but what is all the learning without the saving grace of our divine Lord? The world says that life is good and that its pleasures are to be enjoyed to the full. However, those of us who exercise our reason instead of our emotions know differently. We know that mere pleasure is false and that it cannot give what we crave so much, deep interior peace and joy. It takes time, but sooner or later we all learn the lesson that the world is deceitful and that all its hopes end up in the grave. What are all pleasures which last but what are all pleasures which last but for a brief second? Are they worthy of an intelligent human being made as he is in the image of God? that is to say, capable of everlasting happiness in heaven? From early childhood, the world exercises a false charm over us. We are miseducated 
and led to believe we can find salvation in this life alone and that heaven can be had while still on earth. Fame stalks the soul, and everyone we meet is engaged in the pursuit of what will bring him esteem in the eyes of heaven who, excuse me, in the eyes of others who are equally misled. We are taught to look down on the poor and admire those who possess material riches. This produces a kind of poison in the soul from the effects of which few recover. Only the saints are not taken in by this kind of falsehood. They alone are aware of the true values of life. All people want to be admired and praised. They strive for what will bring them renown. Truth is shunned, and so men and women pursue a different set of values from those to be found in the Old and New Testament writings. What is the world we are asked not to love? It is certainly not the one God has made. It is not the world of nature, the earth with all the things on it. It is not the heavens with all its myriads of stars and planets. It is not something physical that we are told not to love. The world we are told not to love is the one created by the thoughts of men and women, their wrong desires and pursuits. We are told not to set our hearts upon anything human beings have made and which is of a nature to pass away with time. We make a fuss about a lot of things which have no relevance for eternity, and it's these we are told not to love. When we are told not to love the world, the world made by men and women, their interests, concerns, and values which bear no significance apart from time. Men and women love themselves, and loving themselves have no room in their hearts for the love of Christ. We die when we set our hearts on what must end up in the grave, our mortal part, that part of ourselves not made in the image of God, but in the likeness of the lower creatures. We die when we hold power, excuse me, we die when we love power and material riches, which the world holds in such high esteem. Christ is the life, the saints value, and this life does not end up at the foot of the grave. Amen. Okay, I'll talk a little bit about this. I hope you found that beautiful. Uh, I hope you're still with me. I hope you don't think that I'm a macabre old curmudgeon or something. But I think this is truth. And I think that, that uh, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, this is the mistakes that we all fall into. This is a slippery slope that we all kind of spend our lives, you know, digging in our fingernails and trying not to slide down. Uh, obviously, the world that uh, Charlie Rich here is saying we are not to love, we are not to care about, this doesn't mean, as he says, what is the world we are asked not to love? It is not the one God has made. It doesn't mean we don't love our children. It doesn't mean we don't love our parents. It doesn't mean we don't love the, the beauty that God has made. It means that we don't love the world made by man the world of fame, the world of riches, the world of pride, the world of esteem. Um, those things, those things rot to dust the minute that we're in the grave. The investment we make in, uh, in loving our neighbor, that lasts for all eternity, right? The, the good that we do lasts for all eternity. The, the love that we share the um, the children that we raise to hopefully end up with God in heaven, all of those things have eternal value. All of those things are the things we are to love. It's the things that do not have eter uh, eternal value that we're not to love. 
that might include our motorboats and our motorcycles. It certainly includes our awards and our bank accounts and so forth. And it is death to place our love in those. And it not only uh, blinds us to our true purpose, but it fills our hearts and doesn't leave room for the things of eternity to fill our hearts. So, um, um, I, I will simply read, reread the last few paragraphs in that light. Um, and by the way, um, I'm not saying we're in for a chastisement. I have no idea what the future holds. I know that the current state of the world is um, certainly far less secure and far less benevolent seeming than it was when I was growing up, let's say in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, when it looked like, um, you know, the, the sun was shining and everything was coming up roses in this country and in the world and in world peace and in the economy and in technology and so forth. Maybe things look a little bit grimmer now. Maybe things should look a little grimmer now. Maybe we shouldn't have placed our hearts so much on the things of the world. Maybe God knows what's best for us. And maybe we are to be weaned with our enjoyment of uh, transitory goods through a little bit of chastisement or a little bit of suffering. And maybe that's God's plan for the purification of souls and for getting more people to heaven. Because that's the business he's in. The business he's in is not making us happy on earth. The business he's in is making us happy for all eternity by getting into heaven. Um, so I will just, uh, I, I'm down to my last couple of precious minutes. So let me go back to Charlie Rich. We are taught to look down on the poor and admire those who possess material riches. This produces a kind of poison in the soul from the effects of which few recover. Only the saints are not taken in by this kind of falsehood. They alone are aware of the true values of life. All people want to be admired and praised. They strive for what will bring them renown. Truth is shunned, and so men and women pursue a different set of values from those to be found in the Old and New Testament. Men and women, uh, we make a fuss about a lot of things which have no relevance for eternity, and it's these we are told not to love when we are told not to love the world, the world made by men and women, their interests, concerns, and values, which bear no significance apart from time. Men and women love themselves, and loving themselves, they have no room in their hearts for the love of Christ. We die when we set our hearts on what must end up in the grave, our mortal part, that part of ourselves not made in the image of God, but in the likeness of the lower creatures. We die when we love power and material riches, which the world holds in such high esteem. Christ is the life the saints value, and this life does not end up at the foot of the grave. Amen. And so with that, I've come to the end of my delightful time with you. So thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman. And... Um, by the way, I'll put in a little bit of a plug that I do have also a ministry on YouTube, a live stream almost daily. So if you like what you hear, you might want to check that out on YouTube. Just look for my name, Roy Showman, S-C-H-O-E-M-A-N. And uh, otherwise, you can find me again here next week, same time, same place on Radio Maria. 
and thank you for having joined me and I will go out with once again playing that that beautiful hymn in honor of our blessed mother who of course is our our little pass key you know our little a little I don't want to say magic key but pass key to unlock the doors of heaven is praying for the intercession of the blessed virgin mary to pray for her prayers on our behalf to make it through this um, desert of this life to our true eternity of bliss with her, with Jesus, with all of the saints, and in a state of unimaginable intimacy with God himself. And so with that, let's go back to this invocation to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, Toda pulcra es Maria, your totally beautiful Maria. Tota pulcra es Maria, tota pulcra es Maria, et macula originalis, non est in te. Popoli nostri